You're listening to Defending the Biblical Roots of Christianity, an apologetics and theology podcast hosted by Professor R.L. Solberg. For more information about our ministry, visit thebiblicalroots.org. Thank you so much for joining us. I am R.L. Solberg. My friends call me Rob, and I've been your host as we've taken a historical journey through the first three centuries of the Christian faith. I'm glad you decided to tune in for this last episode. We're going to kind of put a bow on the study that we've looked at, and I'm going to offer a few closing thoughts, too. If you've been with us the whole time, you you know that we've been building a case episode by episode and looking at Jewish-Christian relations from the time of Jesus in the New Testament all the way up through the the year 325 when we had the Council of Nicaea. So this, of course, has been a companion to my book called Divergence, and uh, you don't need that book in order to get something out of this series, as I've been mentioning, but I would really highly recommend you buy it because 100% of the profits are being donated to fight anti-Semitism worldwide through an organization called Stand With Us. So I'd love to have you help us out in that cause. Uh, you can find out more information at divergencebook.com or, of course, at my website, rlsolberg.com. So in our last episode, we kind of finalized our case that we were building. We looked at the Council of Nicaea, the uh, artifacts and decisions that it generated, and compared those against the five-point biblical framework that we had established early on, as well as our two theological markers, which were the Lord's Day versus the Sabbath Day is the first marker. The second one is Passover versus Easter. So in this episode, I'm going to offer some closing thoughts on a few different areas, and we'll just try to put a nice pretty bow on this mini-series. So our goal was to determine if, by the conclusion of the Council of Nicaea, if Christian theology had been altered or corrupted due to anti-Jewish attitudes. And if so, if that was the case, how and to what extent was it altered? And what we found out is that while anti-Jewish attitudes certainly did exist, they didn't corrupt or negatively impact Christian theology to any appreciable degree. I mean, for a portion of Christendom, anti-Jewish sentiment played a direct role uh, in that it impacted the date that they observed the resurrection. However, as we saw, because Easter isn't a festival that's mandated in Scripture, the date of its observance is really a church matter rather than a a theological issue. As an analogy, think about if we were discussing today some people wanted to change the date of Hanukkah, let's say. I mean, there would be strong opinions on both sides. There would be appeals to history, but neither side, whoever wanted to keep the date or change the date, neither side could claim a theological or scriptural grounds for their position because Hanukkah is not a celebration that's mandated in the Bible. It's the same thing with Easter. Now, as you know, if you've been with us from the beginning, you know, concerning the the biblical position that Christians should take on Jews and Judaism, we established or found within Scripture a five-point framework, and it's based on the New Testament teachings that we saw. So our five points of this framework, just to recap here, are as follows. Christians are to, number one, recognize Israel's central role in God's story, number two, Acknowledge the failure of the Jewish religious leadership. To, they missed their Messiah. Number three, reject Jewish teachings that deny Christ. Number four, 
understand Israel's future salvation and their place in God's kingdom in the future, and number five, to love and earnestly desire the salvation of Jews. So the theology reflected in the early Christian writings that we looked at, it aligns remarkably well with this framework, and the Council of Nicaea didn't deviate from that theology either. However, where we saw a change over time is in the Christian attitudes toward the Jewish people. In, in particular, Constantine issued some troublesome and uh, irresponsible statements on behalf of the council regarding the motivation to, quote, separate ourselves from the detestable company of the Jews, close quote. That comes from the letter that he wrote after the council. We looked at that last episode. So the decision from the council was made that everyone should celebrate it on the same day. And the net effect of that was essentially prohibiting Christian communities who wanted to continue to commemorate the resurrection on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. It, it essentially prohibited from them from doing that. That decision wasn't made on biblical grounds. It was, a, it was an ecclesiastical decision. But nevertheless, whatever Constantine or the early church may have felt about the Jewish people, it didn't ultimately corrupt the theology that was handed down by Jesus and the apostles. And there's also no notable effort by the church to distance Christianity from its Jewish roots. In fact, there was unanimous agreement on two important facts. First of all, the early church, the early Christians unanimously agreed on the acceptance of the complete Jewish Bible as inspired scripture. The sacred text of the Jews was, was inherited as the sacred text of the Christians. And number two, Christianity was unanimously seen as a continuation of the story that began in those Jewish scriptures. The apostolic fathers, the church fathers, the early Christian writers were all of one accord regarding Jew Jesus being the Jewish Mashiach or Messiah that was foretold in the Hebrew Bible. And more than that, early Christian writers esteemed the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew name for the, for the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish scriptures, what Christians called the Old Testament. They esteemed those documents and they studied them judiciously. For example, in a letter written around the year 230, the influential church father Origen, he goes into great detail explaining where the Septuagint or the Greek version of the Old Testament differed from the Hebrew version. He spent a long time studying and translating back and forth, and he said this. This was in his, uh, this was in his letter to Africanus. He says this, quote, When we notice such things and I'll jump in here, he's talking about discrepancies between the Greek and Hebrew versions of the Old Testament. He says this, quote, When we notice such things, we are forthwith to reject as spurious the copies in use in our churches, and enjoin the brotherhood to put away the sacred books current among them, and to coax the Jews and persuade them to give us copies which shall be untampered with and free from forgery. In other words, he was very concerned at getting accurate reproductions of the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible. And more than that, in his apologetic against a man named Celsus, Origen defended the Jews as a nation that was as learned as any of the others around them, as the Egyptians or the Syrians and other nations. So, so as a whole, the early Christian fathers roundly affirmed the Jewish roots of the Christian faith. Okay, so let me share four brief closing thoughts. These are 
observations that are really relevant to our discussion, to our study that we've that we've undergone, but they didn't fit neatly into the flow of our study. Um, but I still felt they were worth considering, so I want to add them here. And the first has to do with the issue of terminology. In order to fully deal with this question of Jewish-Christian relations that we've been looking at, we need to consider an additional factor that wasn't previously mentioned in this series, and I'm talking specifically about the proper meaning of the term anti-Jewish. What does that mean? So throughout this podcast series, a number of similar related words have been used that can confuse rather than clarify the discussion. So we use terms like Israel, Jews, Hebrew, Jewish, Judaism, Semitism. The danger in this sort of imprecise terminology really comes to light when we ask ourselves a simple question, who is a Jew? Without context, it's really difficult to even define the category of that question. I mean, is it ethnic, religious? Is it national or cultural? So here at the end, I want to take a minute to kind of think through what these terms mean. So the Oxford English Dictionary defines a Jew as follows, quote, a member of the people and cultural community whose traditional religion is Judaism and who trace their origins through the ancient Hebrew people of Israel to Abraham, close quote. Okay, great. That's a little bit helpful, but then it brings up the question, well, then who's a Hebrew? So if we chase that rabbit trail, the Oxford English Dictionary defines a Hebrew as, quote, a member of an ancient people living in what is now Israel and Palestine and, according to biblical tradition, descended from the patriarch Jacob, grandson of Abraham. After the Exodus, they established the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, and their scriptures and traditions form the basis of the Jewish religion, close quote. Okay, that's great. We've added a little color to that, but then that brings up the question, wait a second, who is Israel. The term Israel can refer to the ancient kingdom or its religious leadership, but it can also refer to the modern nation state, or it can be used to refer to the Jewish people as a whole. So, I mean, it becomes quickly evident that on this issue, categories run together. I mean, they blend and they overlap, and there's really no way to cleanly dissect the ethnic, religious, national, cultural, and historical aspects of Jewishness, right? And, and nor should we. They're all part of one people and one history. The Hebrew language is a language of ancient faith that even today can't be taught apart from the sacred scripture. I was amazed when I began my uh, learning of, of biblical Hebrew that we started with Genesis. We started by reading scripture. Even in quote-unquote secular Israel today, the Hebrew language is learned through scripture. So what I came to see is that Jewishness is this beautiful, ornate, complex tapestry that is comprised of many things. I mean, you've got a shared history, a culture, a people, a language, and of course, a religion. So really, when it comes down to it, there's sort of an irreducible level of ambiguity or haziness around this discussion and the terminology that, that it's part of, which is why I decided to kind of set it aside and just offer a few comments here at the end of our journey. And number two, I wanted to kind of take an epilogue on the Christian's biblical view of Jews. And really the question before us is how are followers of Jesus to properly view Jews and Judaism? As Christians, Scripture has to determine our position. That is our authority. And as we've established in this mini-series, the Bible really teaches that Judaism cannot be utterly dismissed or 
wholly embraced by Christians. A biblical response is actually a nuanced response that, that necessarily contains a certain tension. You know, the parts of Jewishness that Christians have to accept include Jewish history, uh, the Jewish people, the Jewish scriptures, of course. The Old Testament is part of our Bible, and that's the Jewish scripture. These are all affirmed in the New Testament. And, and in fact, it's the very Jewish history and people and story into which Christians have been adopted, or as Paul says in Romans 11, we've been grafted into that story. So what parts then of Jewishness are Christians expected to reject? Well, first, obviously, we must reject anti-Semitism as morally repugnant and unbiblical. That's very clear. We're also required to reject those tenets of Judaism that reject Jesus. We looked at that also in an earlier episode. And what about the law of Moses? Christians certainly have to accept the law, the Old Testament law, as an integral part of Scripture and and an integral part of the history of God's people. We know that Paul had the entire Jewish Bible in view when he wrote this in 2 Timothy 3, starting at verse 16. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. However, like Israel's slavery in Egypt and her covenant given at Sinai and her exile in Babylon, the law of Moses was never intended to last forever. It was given as a tutor or a guardian to guide the nation of Israel until Christ came. We see this in Luke 16, 16, and of course in Galatians 3, verses 24 and 25. Um, And you can see my book, Torahism, for a more in-depth examination of that subject. Now, the Jewish teaching that Jesus was neither divine nor the Messiah is simply wrong. Jesus rejected it, the New Testament authors opposed it, and we need to resist it too. To wholly accept Judaism is to wholly deny Christ. Yet, however, conversely, to wholly accept Christ doesn't require a complete rejection of Judaism. As the Apostle Paul modeled for us, a Jew doesn't need to leave their Jewishness behind to follow Jesus. In fact, Messianic Jews who are Jewish believers in Jesus, they often refer to themselves as completed Jews. So as Christians, our fight isn't with the Jewish people or with Jewishness in general. It's not even really with the religion of Judaism as a whole. Our conflict is solely with the teachings of Jewish theology that deny our Savior. And that can be a tricky balance to maintain. Faith is a a vital and intensely personal affair, and offense can lie just below the surface, and it's easily triggered, as we all know. But the Apostle Peter gives us some great guidance here in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, it's interesting he doesn't say if you're slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Third, I want to offer a few thoughts on freedom. Whatever God creates or decrees is perfect, right? Right up until we humans get our hands on it. God created mankind innocent, and we fell into sin. God gave the law at Sinai, 
and his people broke it even before Moses came down the mountain. In the same way, God gave us his word, his written word, knowing that human beings weren't going to be able to discern its meaning in perfect agreement with one another. And thankfully, there is freedom in Christ. Paul wrote this, Colossians 2.16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. And he echoes the same sentiment in, for example, Romans 14, where the, weak, where the strong are not to judge the weak for how they're living out their faith, right? In other words, regarding these sorts of things, followers of Jesus are free to choose as a matter of conscience. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. However, 1 Corinthians 10.23 says, quote, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So therefore, Galatians 5.13 tells us, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In fact, 1 Peter 2.16 says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And as Paul says in Romans 14, 14, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And fourthly, I want to share a few thoughts about seeking a biblical tone. And, and again, this is one of those things that kind of kept recurring, kept popping up through our study as we looked at the New Testament and the early writings in Nicaea, but it really didn't seem to have a good spot. So I just want to take a moment to kind of think through this issue, because Scripture has a lot to say about how we deal with our opponents, right? People who are uh, we are arguing with or who are enemies, etc. You know, we're, we're to value mercy and forgiveness and turning the other cheek and praying for those who persecute us. These are the things our Lord taught us. At the same time, the Bible also models harsh criticisms against the wicked. This confrontational component is really evident in Jesus' cleansing of the temple, right, and his woes against the Pharisees. We, we looked at those earlier. That's a place where we really find no semblance of gentleness or diplomacy. Jesus is just laying it out there. Um, and this tone is also apparent at times in the Psalms. The psalmist often is asking God to mete out severe punishment on his enemies. For example, look at Psalm 58, starting at verse 6, quote, O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Whew, okay, well that severe sentiment in this passage and others like it, that's markedly different from loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, right? So what can we conclude from this? I know some want to argue that scripture was really just a product of its time. It was written in a turbulent era when survival and conquest were paramount and modern culture, by contrast, you know, we value tolerance and inclusion and non-judgmentalism, but isn't any contemporary reading of the Bible also a product of its time? I mean, the question we need to ask really is, what does God want us to take away from this range of biblical passages or teachings about dealing with opponents? One thing we notice is that Scripture consistently presents 
an unmistakable moral distinction between good and evil or the righteous and the wicked or right and wrong. This contrast actually extends to faith in Christ, right? In Matthew 12, 30, he taught, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And in fact, when Jesus sent out the 12 in Matthew 10, we see this. This is Matthew 10, starting at verse 13. Jesus told them, if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. So here we see Jesus requiring his followers to exercise judgment in determining the worthiness of a house. And I don't think he was referring to the the moral standing of the people that lived there, but more to their willingness to receive his disciples and listen to their words. And if the house was unwilling, well, Jesus commanded his disciples to take back their peace and perform the symbolic act of shaking the dust off their feet, which really was a, a renunciation and it indicated a severed relationship. And more than that, even Jesus cautioned that those who deny him or are ashamed of him, he will in turn be ashamed of and deny them before the Father. This is in Mark 8.38 and Luke 12.8 and 1 John 2. So maybe the, the thread connecting these biblical denunciations of the wicked is that they target those who are willfully or knowingly rebelling against God. If you think about it, Jesus didn't criticize the woman at the well or the rich young ruler in the same way that he criticized the Pharisees who knew better and who were openly resisting his message. So there seems to be a biblical precedent regarding the strong opposition that was expressed by the early Christians that we read about earlier in this podcast series, right? Men like Justin Martyr and Cyprian were opposing the Jews who were willfully and knowingly denying Christ. I think there's a, a certain seriousness in Christ's self-understanding that modern believers can tend to overlook in favor of his love and his mercy, right? In, in, in gazing on Jesus' astounding loveliness, we can miss his equally important holiness. In, in trying to love and hope the best for others, we sometimes fail to recognize those who are actually in open rebellion against God and his message. If we, if we look at Jesus' warning that he placed right in the middle of his teaching on how to rightly judge. In Matthew 7, 6, he says this, quote, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. These are sometimes referred to as the harsh teachings of Jesus that are just as true as the teachings about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. So taken holistically, Scripture teaches that in addition to love and mercy and forgiveness, there's also a time for opposition and a time for separation. The question is, how do we know which is which? And there's a theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, who offers a prayerful approach in what is popularly, popularly known in recovery circles as the serenity prayer. He says this, quote, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference. It seems to me there's definitely a growing interest in the Jewish roots of the Christian faith and a desire to understand Scripture in its Middle Eastern cultural context. You know, maybe the emergence in recent decades of things like the Name It and Claim It movement and the prosperity gospel and, you know, televangelists and progressive Christianity, you know, who's peddling this kind of cheap grace, as, as Bonhoeffer called it. 
maybe the emergence of that strain of Christianity has, has left Christians thirsting for substance. You know, there's so much to be admired about this quest for the historical and theological roots of our faith. In fact, movements like Torahism or the Hebrew Roots Movement, they may be actually a healthy warning sign for the church. They might represent a countering of the Western church's drift towards a commercialized, watered-down faith. However, that said, we have to be very careful. In the second century, Marcion, as we looked at this earlier, Marcion swung the pendulum way too far. You know, by rejecting the Jews and their scriptures, he ended up just drowning in heresy and he was ejected from the church. And today, this movement of Torah-observant Christianity or Torahism or Hebrew roots, it's really swinging the pendulum too far in the other direction. You know, by declaring the laws given to Israel under the Sinai covenant, by saying that those are now today binding on Christians who were never included in that covenant in the first place, this strain of teaching, this Torahism, is also wading into heresy. What we need to do is pursue a healthy biblical balance. I think recognizing and honoring the true Jewish roots of the Christian faith is an effort worth making. That's why I've got my YouTube channel called Biblical Roots of Christianity, because the gospel, after all, is a Jewish story. All right, and that wraps it up. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being part of this 11-part mini-series. It's been an honor to be your host. Uh, again, if you want more information, please check out divergencebook.com or rlsolberg.com, and we'll catch you later. Shalom. Shalom.